All right, how are we doing this morning, everybody? Okay, wow, all right, still waking up, it sounds like. But uh, man, it is, uh, it's great to be together. It's great to see you this morning. And uh, like Clark said, if you're a guest here this morning, thanks so much for being with us. We count it a privilege that you would wanna spend some time with us and uh, for being here. If you haven't been here for the past couple of weeks or if this is your first time, there's a good chance that maybe we've never had a chance to meet. And so let me introduce myself to you. Uh, my name is Tony, one of the pastors on staff here at Grace. And uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd really encourage you, if you get some time, please stop me in the cafe afterwards. I uh, genuinely love to hear uh, how you got connected to Grace, kind of what your story is, where, where you're coming from, even what your church background is. I just love hearing that. And so if you, if you have time, uh, catch me in the cafe afterwards, and I'd love to uh, get a chance to meet you if I haven't. And I also just want to say, too, if you're a guest here this morning, if it's your first time at Grace, I just want to pause and recognize that, um, that, man, I know that sometimes if you're new to a church, if you walk into a place you don't know people or maybe you don't, you don't have any connections or it's unfamiliar for you. It actually takes a lot of courage. And so I just want to say thank you for doing that. Thanks for coming out, uh, for taking a big step of faith and uh, for kind of jumping in and joining us. We hope that you uh, feel welcomed because you are. And so we're super glad to have you here this morning. But if you are a guest, you're actually catching us right now near the end of a series uh, that we've been doing together called Patterns That Change Us. And so just to kind of catch you up to speed with what it is that we've been talking about in the series, we've basically been looking at these patterns or these habits or these rhythms of life that lead to transformation. And really what we've been saying in the series is we've been saying that Jesus didn't simply come to give his life, which of course he did, but we said even more than that, Jesus also came to show us how to live. Uh, Jesus came to exemplify for us and he came to teach us a pattern of life that if we follow kind of the habits and the rhythms of Jesus, that if we follow the patterns of a Christ-like life, that it'll actually lead to transformation. And so what we're doing in this series then is we're actually just getting as practical as we know how to get, and we're saying, what are those patterns? What, what is the rhythm of life of a person who follows Jesus, and how does that actually lead to true transformation? How do we flesh that out in real time in our culture here today? So that's what we've been doing. So, so far, just as a way of recapping, we've looked at five patterns together. And here's the patterns that we've spent some time thinking about and looking at. We talked about solitude and community. Uh, we've talked about fasting and feasting. We talked about secrecy and confession, simplicity and generosity, and then praying and acting. And you can probably tell just by looking at these different patterns that are on the screen, uh, each pattern is interrelated there's an interconnectedness, there's almost a symbiotic symmetry uh, to each one of these patterns. So really what we're talking about is we're talking about rhythms of life. We're talking about habits of life and how we put those into kind of our regular rhythm of life as well. And so if you missed any of these talks, by the way, you can go back, you can listen to any of them on our podcast, on our app, our website. All of those uh, platforms are free and we'd love for you to, to take advantage of that. But today what we're gonna do is we're gonna continue uh, looking at a pattern that we started looking at last week and that's the sixth pattern. It's worshiping together in private meditation. Worshiping together in private meditation. So all last week we talked about worshiping together. We talked about why doing stuff like this, like what we're doing today, uh, is so important. Like, why is it important that we make it a habit that we come together and we surround ourselves around the Bible, around God's word, and we let that instruct us and teach? Why do we sing songs together? Why do we do this? And so last week, we really had a chance to talk about that. Well, this week, this week, we're going to talk about the other side of this pattern. We're going to talk all about private meditation. Okay, so today, we're going to get our minds around this idea, this pattern of private 
meditation. Now, my guess is that when I say today we're talking about private meditation, that when I put that up on the screen, it probably becomes apparent pretty quickly that this is gonna require a little bit of explanation, all right? I think the reason for that is because the word meditation in our culture today uh, carries with it a whole lot of different ideas. And so meditating, it can be, I think when we hear the word meditation, it can be one of those words that's kind of fuzzy and foggy. Uh, it can seem a little new agey when we kind of talk about it. And so there's all these different thoughts that kind of come along with the idea of meditation. In fact, if you think about it, uh, some common perceptions, like when we think about meditation today in our society, there are some common kind of stereotypical perceptions that come along with the idea of meditation. So for example, uh, one of the common perceptions is that when we talk about meditation, a lot of times what comes to our mind is we think of the posture of our bodies. Think of the posture of our bodies. So let me just ask you, for example, when I say meditation and, I, and you, you think about a certain posture of your body, what does that look like? Right? So just, just show me maybe. What is meditating? Yeah, exactly. I see a lot of you doing this, right? Some of you, if you're flexible, you're doing this, right? And if you go to Google Images and you Google uh, meditation, the, the images that are gonna pop up is stuff like this, right? And so that's pretty stereotypical. That's what we tend to think. And so when we think of meditation, a lot of times we associate it with yoga. And a lot of people who practice yoga will practice the, uh, the art of meditation as well. Uh, a lot of times it's focused on being in a certain position in a certain posture. Uh, it's about a certain breathing pattern. Because, because meditation is so much about a mental state, that a lot of times when people talk about meditation, they talk about a certain posture of your body. And so maybe that comes to your mind. Another common perception, I think today, as it relates to meditation, is a lot of times we think of uh, clearing your mind. Think about the process of clearing your mind. So uh, when I say the word meditates, maybe for you, uh, some of the things that come to your mind is you start thinking of Eastern religions. So Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, these are both faith systems that encourage the practice of meditation. And in Eastern religions, meditation is primarily concerned with the emptying of your mind, the clearing of your mind, or the elimination of distractions. And so uh, a lot of times that's what meditation is about, right? It's about, it's about trying to clear your mind. It's about trying to obtain some kind of mental focus or some kind of connectedness to the universe or whatever that might be. In fact, there's some forms of Hindu meditation where they actually encourage you to repeat one word over and over. They call it a holy word. You repeat that word over and over and over again. And the point is that it would eliminate any other distracting thoughts. And so the point uh, of at least Eastern meditation is this idea of clearing your mind. So maybe you think of something like that. Here's another common perception. One of the buzzwords that you might hear today, if you're a person who's ever researched or looked into meditation, is you might have heard this word before, mindfulness. So there's this, uh, there's this very popular kind of resurgence of this idea of mindfulness, especially in New Age teaching and also kind of in alternate, alternate uh, medicine communities. They'll talk about the benefits of meditation, about how it relaxes you, about how it eliminates stress. And they'll talk about this idea of mindfulness. And what they mean is, is that mindfulness is really about achieving some kind of higher state of consciousness and a higher sense of awareness of your surroundings. And so there's kind of a big focus on this. So if you like listen to Oprah, she is a big advocate for meditation because of the importance of mindfulness. Uh, there is a guru, uh, kind of a new age guru by the name of Deepak Chopra. I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy before. He's actually very popular. Uh, and his kind of claim to fame 
is that he said he's meditated every day for the past 40 years of his life. And this is what he says about meditation. He says this. He says, meditation is defined as the progressive widening of the mind until it reaches the source of the mind, which is the soul or the spirit. And then Deepak Chopra goes on to say this. He says, the reason you do this is to manage stress and to open the door of your soul. And so what's he saying? Well, this is the idea of mindfulness. Deepak is saying that meditation is actually intended to kind of elevate your thinking to a higher level of consciousness, to open the door of your soul, to relax you, but to give you a sense of awareness of your surroundings. That's kind of what he would say. Now, here's the thing. When you think about some of the common perceptions that come along with meditation, I think because of that, when I say today we're going to talk about private meditation, some of you are like, all right, where where are you going with this exactly? And you might be thinking, this sounds like like some kind of hippy-dippy baloney, you know? And you maybe kind of roll your eyes and you think like, come on, is this like, is this where we're really going? We're talking about meditation. But what I want you to understand and what I think is gonna be helpful is that um, it's important that you know that the Bible talks a lot about meditation. In fact, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you're gonna see this idea of meditation show up in scripture. And the Bible's gonna tell us that there's transformation that God desires for you and he desires for me that can only be accessed through meditation. And the Bible's gonna talk about that. Now, but what I want you to understand, and I think it's gonna be clarifying, is that when the Bible talks about meditation, you're gonna see that biblical meditation is completely antithetical to everything on this screen, all right? So biblical meditation is actually the exact opposite of these things right here. You're like, well, what do you mean by that? Well, that's what I wanna show you today. And so the passage I wanna invite you to go to with me in the Bible this morning is in Psalm chapter one. So if you want to, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bible and let's turn together to Psalms 1. Uh, If you didn't bring a Bible with you here this morning, that's not a problem. You can just take the Bibles under the chairs, turn to page 374. So page 374 is where you're gonna find Psalm 1 and those Bibles under the chair. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of those. You can have it, just take it home with you. We'd love for you to have um, a Bible. So Psalm 1. And so the reason I'm having you go to Psalm 1 is I think here we're gonna see maybe the clearest definition of what biblical meditation is. I think it's maybe one of the clearest definitions of what it truly is. And so that's why we're looking at Psalm 1. As you're turning to Psalm 1, I want you to understand, though, Psalm 1 is not simply the first chapter of the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 is actually much more than that. And so according to commentators, uh, they would actually look at Psalm 1, and they would say Psalm 1 is actually more like the introduction to the book of Psalms. In fact, Psalm 1, in a lot of ways, is really a depiction of what the ideal Bible reader looks like. It's like instructions in how to read the Bible. And what you're gonna find in Psalm 1 is that it's gonna say that the ideal Bible reader is the person who meditates. That's what it's gonna say in Psalm 1. So let's take a look at this. Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1, here's what it says. The psalmist says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on the law day and night. Now, let's kind of pause there for a second. I want you to notice the psalmist begins with a very, very powerful word in the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter one. He begins with this word, blessed, blessed. Blessed is the one. He goes on to explain who the blessed person is. Now, what's interesting is the word blessed, some of you have different translations, might be translated happy, happy. And that's actually accurate too, blessed, happy. This word that's used in the Hebrew language, blessed, is actually so much deeper and richer 
than the way we tend to use it in our culture today. The word blessed in the Hebrew language literally means this. It means total fulfillment. It means complete well-being. And so when the, when, the, when the Bible talks about blessed, it's talking about something so robust and something so rich. And what I want you to understand, and I want you to see this connection, is that the Bible is going to tell us that blessed is the person who doesn't do these things, who doesn't, you know, walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. But notice this, blessed is a person who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night. So right away, I want you to notice this connection. The Bible actually makes a promise to you and me. And here's the promise, that there is incredible blessing in store for the person who learns to meditate. And that's what the Bible's gonna say. It's gonna make this connection. It's going to tell you God has something for you if you would be a person who can learn to meditate. Well, that begs the question, all right, well, then how do you do that? How do you actually meditate? Well, before I give you a definition of what biblical meditation is, which I'm gonna give you here in just a moment, and I think it's gonna be very clarifying, I want you first to notice that before the Bible tells us that we should meditate, it actually explains that the first step to true meditation actually is all about the posture of your heart. It actually begins with the posture of your heart. So if you think about it this way, uh, in non-biblical meditation, right, we, talk, we talked about that earlier, it's very concerned with the posture of your body. It's concerned with the way that you sit, about how you relax, about your breathing techniques and those type of things to achieve optimal relaxation. That's what non-biblical meditation is concerned with. Biblical meditation, on the other hand, we're gonna see is very concerned with the posture of your heart. A biblical, biblical meditation isn't concerned about the way that you position your body. It's more concerned about the position of your heart. You're like, well, what do you mean by that? What is the posture of your heart? What is the position of your heart? Well, Psalms 1 actually tells us, if you look carefully, look, look with me at verse 2. It said, blessed, blessed is the one who, now here's the key, who delights, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, what's that talking about? That is talking about a posture of heart. It's talking about the way in which you approach the law of God, the way in which you approach the Bible. Look what it says. It says they delight. The word delight there literally means desires. It means long. It means that which you find pleasure in. And then I think it's interesting. It says the person who delights in the law of the Lord. Now, I studied this a lot this past week, and I found this really fascinating. And I don't think this is uh, unintentional. But I, th I find it fascinating that in Psalm 1, when Psalm 1 refers to the Bible, it calls the Bible the law of the Lord. Now, if you're a person who's maybe studied the Bible or, you've, or you're, not, you know, you're, not, you're not new to the Bible, you've been around for a while, you probably know that there's a lot of different words that the Bible uses to refer to itself. And so sometimes the Bible calls itself the word of God. Sometimes the Bible calls itself scripture. Sometimes the Bible calls itself the sword the word of the sword uses words like that. And sometimes the Bible calls itself the law of the Lord. Now, what's interesting here is that when the psalmist chooses to talk about the Bible, he uses this word right here. He uses the law of the Lord. The, the word is uh, literally in the Hebrew language. It's the word Torah, which just generally means instruction or the law. Now, here's the question. Why would he use that word? Why would he use that? Why wouldn't he just say, blessed is the person who delights in reading the Bible? Why wouldn't he just say that? Why wouldn't he just say, blessed is the person who enjoys scripture? Why would he choose to say, blessed is the person whose delight is in the law of the Lord? Well, 
A lot of commentators think that's actually really intentional, and I agree with them. Because what is he saying? He's talking about a posture of your heart. He's talking about the way that you actually approach the Bible. See, when it talks about the law, what's that talking about? It's talking about authority. It's saying that I'm coming to the word, I'm approaching the word, and I'm allowing it to have authority in my life. I am submitting myself, I am subjecting myself to what it says, and I'm allowing it to transform me, and I'm allowing it to change me. See, I think what the psalmist understands is this, and I think we all know this, that there's a lot of different ways you can approach the Bible. I think we all know this. There's a lot of different ways you can read the Bible. So for example, you could read the Bible like a skeptic, and maybe some of you do. Maybe that's where some of you are. Maybe you're a person that's investigating Jesus, or you're new to the whole Jesus thing, or maybe you're new to the Bible, and quite honestly, you're skeptical of the whole thing. And so when you read the Bible, you read it as a skeptic. You read it in such a way that you're like, man, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. You read it in a way where you're like, I'm just trying to figure out what Christians believe, and so that's why I'm reading the Bible. So you can read the Bible that way, and a lot of people do read the Bible that way. You can read the Bible um, for information. And by the way, a lot of people do this. And so there's a ton of archaeologists and historians who read the Bible deeply, but they don't have any faith at all. And so they'll read the Bible to gain archaeological information for their digs. They'll, they'll read the Bible to get historical information for whatever it is, because the Bible contains those things. But when they read the Bible, they're not reading it as law. They're reading it as history. They're reading it as you know, facts and figures and like that. You can read the Bible as inspiration, like chicken soup for the soul kind of thing, right? Where you're like, I don't actually really believe it, but if it inspires me and it motivates me and those kind of things, then that's really cool. I like that one verse. I'm gonna get it you know, etched on a sweater or something because it, you know, or get it tattooed somewhere because it makes me feel good. But I don't really believe the whole Bible or much of it, whatever. You can read the Bible as a chore, and I think that uh, there's a lot of us who can fall into this trap where the, reading the Bible becomes a checklist. You know, I, I, I do my Bible reading every day and then I check a box or whatever it might be. I think what the psalmist is saying is, look, there's a lot of different ways you can approach the Bible, but if you truly wanna be blessed, if you truly wanna be transformed, it begins with a posture of your heart. And what is that posture? It is that you delight, delight in the law of the Lord. It's to say that when you come to this thing, you come to it, man, with a certain posture of your heart that you are subjecting yourself to what it says. You are giving it authority in your life. And I'm telling you, that's where transformation comes from. A couple different ways I'd say the same thing. Here's one way you can say it. In meditation, you're not simply reading the Bible, but you're actually allowing the Bible to read you. It's probably a better way to think of it. That, that it's not just you reading text, just words passing in front of your eyeballs but it's you inviting those words into your life to challenge you and to convict you and to, to even offend you, to change you. That's what we're talking about. Now, here's another way to think of it. In meditation, you're not reading to get through the text, but you're reading for the text to get through to you. You're reading not just to get through a passage of scripture, but because you want it to get into your life. You want it to challenge you, to convict you, and to change you. And so I think it's important that we realize that in biblical meditation, biblical meditation starts here. It's not about the posture of your body. It's about the posture of your heart. And what is the posture of your heart? It's a person who delights in the law of the Lord. And I want you to notice this. Non-biblical meditation is concerned with the clearing of your mind, with the emptying of your mind. We're going to see with biblical meditation, it's actually the exact opposite. And the opposite is it's all about the filling of your mind. 
Okay, so biblical meditation is concerned with the filling of your mind. And what do you mean by that? Well, it's filling it with God's word. In fact, I want you to notice again, look at Psalm 1 verse 2. It says that blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates, who meditates on it day and night. Day and night, they're meditating on it. Now, here I think is probably a great opportunity for me to give you a definition of biblical meditation. I think this is really cool. So the word in, in the Hebrew language for meditate is actually a very, very interesting word. It is, I think, a very clarifying word. And at the same time, it's also a little bit of a perplexing word. All right, so here's the word. The word for meditate in the Hebrew language is this word right here. It's the word haga. Haga. And I know you want to say it, so go ahead and turn to your neighbor. And you got to get the throat in there too, right? So get and go, haga. Just say it, haga, right? Yeah, like haga. As in, like, I didn't know any Hebrew words before, but now haga one, right? That's what it's, that's the worst joke I ever told in my life, literally. So there it is, haga. So what does haga mean? Right, here's what it means it means to sigh, it means to murmur, it means to contemplate. Look at this, it means to ingest, to salivate. It means to take it in. So the root word for Haggah means to murmur. It's the sound that you make. And then if you translate it, it means to contemplate or to ingest or to salivate. And that's pretty interesting. Now, what makes matters even more interesting is this word Haggah is used all throughout the Old Testament. Mostly it's translated meditate, but it's also used in many other occasions in reference to animals. And so, for example, did you know in the book of Isaiah, it says that a lion haggahs over its prey, that when a lion catches its food and it's eating its food, what is this doing? It's haggahing over its prey. Bears, according to the book of Isaiah, haggah. When a bear growls, the Bible says it's haggahing. Doves, doves haggah. They haggah. And what's it talking about? The noise that they make. So what's that talking about? Well, it's interesting. The Bible says, the Bible says that the way God wants us to interact with the Bible is something like this. He wants it to look something like this, like a lion haggahing over its food. So let me just ask you a question real quick. Um, looking at this guy here eating this food, this lion, what kind of noises do you think he's making right now? What kind of noise? In fact, I know you want to do it. Just turn to your neighbor. Give him your best lion haggahing noises. What do you think it is? Go ahead. Give it a shot. Let's hear it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's it. The noise you just made, yeah. I imagine, I don't know. I imagine it's something like, you know. I don't know. Something like, I've never seen a lion eat before, but I'm guessing something like that. What about a dove? What noise does a dove make? A coos, right? What does that sound like? Yeah, <laughs> you guys are awesome. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't know. God's like, that's how I want you to read the Bible. And you guys are like, that makes no sense to me at all. I don't know what to do that. Well, just think about it for a minute. It's actually pretty cool because in one sense, it's talking about the, the, the noise you make. So if you're, if you're reading the Bible, it's talking about, did you ever read the Bible and it makes you growl? Did you ever do that before? Did you ever read scripture and it, and it makes you haga? You're like, hmm, what does that even mean? I can't you know, <laughs> I've never done that last one, but right? there's another part too about this word. It also carries with it 
the idea of ingesting. It's taking it in. All right, so you get the picture. This is not, look, this is not casual reading. This is not, I'm just, words are going in front of my face, and then there's, this is, no, 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 man. I am, I am taking it in. And I am, pull, I am getting every morsel off the bone, and I am pulling it into myself. I am reading this not for information. I am reading this for transformation. And it's making its way into me. It is giving me nutrition, and it is animating me. It is giving me power to live. See, the Bible says that's what it means to meditate. That's what it means. Someone who comes to God's word with a certain posture of heart, but then they fill themselves with God's word, not like you fill yourself with words, but like you fill yourself with food. It's different. It's totally different. And so what you see is uh, non-biblical meditation is about the posture of your body, the clearing of your mind, and mindfulness. Biblical meditation is about the posture of your heart, the filling of your mind. And what's interesting is the goal of biblical meditation you're going to see is not mindfulness. It's not achieving some higher sense of consciousness. The goal of biblical meditation, check this out, is fruitfulness. It's actually fruitfulness. You're like, well, what does that mean? Well, look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Look at the metaphor. The psalm, it's a very powerful metaphor. Here's what the psalmist says. He says, that person, what person? The person who delights in the law of the Lord and hagaz it. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. All right, so I love this metaphor. It's a very powerful and profound metaphor if you think about it. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the person who learns to Haggah, who delights in the law of the Lord, it says that person is like a tree that is planted by streams of water. So here's the image that the psalmist uses. This is actually a picture off of the Nile River in a, in a desert area. So it's, you can see it's very dry and arid. There's a desert, and here's the Nile River coming through. And you notice that here on the shoreline are these lush green trees in the middle of a desert. And why is that? Well, it's because they're trees that are planted by streams of water. I think this is a really powerful illustration because think about it. Here's what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying about itself that Scripture is like an unending supply of life and richness that results in human, a human life that is fruitful. That's what it's saying. That the word of God is like an eternal stream of life and of richness that is available. And that a person who learns to meditate, a person who learns to meditate, to Hagah, is like a person who puts its roots into that stream, accesses that stream, and it allows it to be healthy no matter what season it might be in. That's what it's talking about. It's interesting, the Bible doesn't say that a person who learns to meditate is just any old tree. Right? Any old tree, any old tree that's planted in any old place relies on the circumstances of the weather for its health and for its vibrant, vibrancy. So you plant a tree somewhere, it's gonna depend on the rain. If it doesn't rain, the tree's gonna die. And that's just what's gonna happen. It depends on the circumstances surrounding it. That's not so with a tree who's planted in streams of water. So the tree that's planted in streams of water, whether it's a dry season or whether it's a wet season or whether it's a stormy season or whether it's winter time, whatever it might be, it doesn't matter because it's plugged into something that transcends even the circumstances around it. And because of that, it's enabled to be healthy and vibrant even in times when it might be dry or the season might be an off season or whatever it might be. You see, I think that's what the Bible's saying. 
Saying that, listen, if you're a person who learns to truly meditate on scripture, that no matter what the circumstances of your life may be, no matter what kind of trial or heat that you're facing, no matter what health crisis or financial situation that's going on in your life or relational turbulence that you're facing, if you are deeply rooted in something that is nourishing you, the eternal word of God, that can transform you and it can change you. And it's interesting because you notice the Bible says that the goal of this, notice, the goal is fruitfulness, that it will yield fruit in season whose leaf does not wither. And I think this is interesting. Think about this for a minute. A tree that's planted by streams of water takes water into its roots. But then what comes out of the branches? Is it water? No, it's fruit. Fruit comes. Somehow, miraculously, by God's design, this tree pulls water into itself and then it fleshes it out into fruit. And you see, I think it's important for us to understand that that's the goal of meditation. The goal of meditation isn't to acquire more biblical knowledge and information. It's not to take the Bible into yourself so that you can just, you know, know more about the Bible or just have, a, you know, a greater understanding of what Scripture teaches, which is great. The goal of meditating is that you take that into you and then it begins to transform you and then it fleshes itself out in your life into fruit. And so now it shows up. And where does it show up? It shows up in your actions. It shows up in your character. It shows up in your marriage. It shows up in your finances. It shows up in your sexuality. It begins to bear fruit. And so now the character of Jesus and the mission of Jesus and the life of Jesus is starting to come out of you. That's the fruit. That's the fruit. And that's the goal of what biblical meditation is all about. And so I think, my hope is that when you look at this, that that clarifies for you what truly is biblical meditation. Helps you understand the difference between some of the common perceptions and then what, what, the, what the Bible teaches about this whole practice and habit of meditation. All right, now, having said all that, here's the question then. All right, so practically speaking, practically speaking, how do we become people who learn to meditate? How can we take this pattern and put it in our lives? All right, well, let me try to get as practical as I know how to get. And let's just start with this. I think the first practical consideration that we need to put on the board is that first and foremost, I think we need to recognize that we have a unique challenge ahead of us as it relates to this particular pattern. And what I mean by that is, is, is this, is that I think that the culture and time that we live in right now that, that in some ways meditation is easier than it's ever been because we have incredible access to so many resources. But I think in other ways, we are uniquely challenged to practice this. There's unique challenges that we face as a culture that maybe cultures before us have never, cha have never faced before. And what I mean is that, you know, Tommy, Tommy alluded to this last week. We live in a time and space right now where we are more distracted than we have ever been. As a society and as a culture, we are just more distracted than we've ever been. Uh, it's fascinating. I was reading this study, um, probably doesn't surprise you, this past week, and it was talking about the ever-increasing or the ever-decreasing attention span of Americans in light of uh, the advancement of technology and the busyness of our calendars. It talks about how we are just, our, our attention span is diminishing. In fact, did you know, according to experts, the average American attention span is the same as a goldfish. Did you hear that? The goldfish. I, I don't even know how in the world you quantify something like that. I was going to read to figure it out, but it lost my attention. It's, I started something, <laughs> something else. But, uh, but no, and that doesn't surprise us, right? 
We just live in a unique time. I was reading a book a while ago. It was a book called The Shallows by a guy named Nicholas Carr. It's a little, it was a while ago, but it was a Pulitzer Prize winning book. And I thought what he said was really insightful. Here's what he said. He said, what the internet seems to be doing is chipping away my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way the net distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. And then he goes on to say this. He says, once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words, but now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. And when I read that, I thought, wow, that is really well put. Because I could just tell you, I see this, I see this in myself. I totally see this. I remember I used to be able to sit down and read a whole book. And now, I, honestly, I feel like I have a hard time reading a whole blog in one sitting. It's hard to, to not just skim the surface of things and actually deeply get into something or read something. And why is that? Well, I think we need to recognize that we just live in a very unique time where our attention spans are being hijacked in a lot of different ways. We process information uh, differently. You know, uh, anthropologists talk about how we now live in what they call a third screen world. Some people call it a fourth screen world, but I think third, third screen world is probably more effective. What they mean by that is that over the past 100 years, there's been such a radical shift in technology that it changes the way that we process information and we think. And so third screen world. So the first screen, what was the first screen? The first screen was a television screen. And it used to be, and I remember this in my lifetime, some of you remember this, it used to be that you know, a family had a TV and they put it in one spot, it was in the living room. And whenever you wanted to watch it, you had to go to a certain place. And if you wanted to watch a show, you had to be there at a certain time. And if you weren't there at that time, you missed the show. It's just the way it worked. And so the whole family would gather around the TV at a certain time, at a certain place. That was the first screen. Well, then the second screen came out. The second screen, of course, is the PC. When that thing showed up, all of a sudden, it revolutionized the way we work, revolutionized the way that we interact with each other. Email became a thing. And then we moved to the third screen. The third screen, of course, is our cell phone screen. And it used to be with the first screen that you had to sit down and you had to go to it at a certain time. Now, this thing's with you all the time. It's in your pocket, and it's perpetually alerting you. It's perpetually alarming you. It's telling you what's urgent and what needs to happen right now. And if you want to watch something, you can watch it any time, any moment you want to. Binge watch whatever. In fact, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, a Netflix poll that was done not too long ago found that 61%, 61% of people define their viewing style as binge watching, which means two to six episodes in a setting. And then interestingly, there was a guy named Grant McCracken. He's a cultural anthropologist, and he was actually hired by Netflix to investigate and promote the habit of binge watching. And here's what he concluded. He said this. He said, TV viewers are no longer zoning out as a way to forget their day. They're tuning in on their own schedule to a different world. Getting immersed in multiple episodes or even multiple seasons of a show over a few weeks is a, a new kind of escapism that is especially welcome today. And I think this is interesting. And again, I'm not anti-Netflix or anti-watching TV at all. But what I'm saying is, I think we just need to recognize that there's a unique challenge for us. Because if we're gonna be people who meditate, that requires not that we're scuba divers or not that we're uh, jet skiers of the Bible, but that we're scuba divers of the word. And I'm just telling you, I think all of us know this. So much of our life, so much of our life is formed by what we give our attention to. This is true. And so let me just ask you a question. For example, let's say you spent 12 hours a week playing the guitar, learning how to play the guitar. Do you think that over a year's period of time that that's gonna change you? Do you think over a year's period of time that's gonna bear fruit in your life? 
And the answer is, of course, you're probably going to be a pretty proficient guitar player. If you, can re- if you can play for 12 hours a week, you probably are. Listen, if you were to spend 12 hours a week helping the poor, let's just say you spent 12 hours a week interacting with, with people that were in impoverished situations, hearing their stories, helping. Do you think that that's going to transform your compassion? You think that's going to change the way you view people? You think that's going to change your heart? I think so. I think so. Do you think that if you sit down in front of a screen for 12 hours a week and just let someone tell you what to think and seduce your imagination, do you think that's going to have an impact over, on you over time? We're naive to think it doesn't. We're naive to think it wouldn't. And all, all I'm saying is, is we live in a unique time. And because of that, I think we have a unique challenge that we have to fight against in order to be people who meditate. So here's some practical suggestions. I think uh, recognize a unique challenge. Here's the next thing. Set aside specific time for meditation. I think we got to set aside time for this. I would hearken back to uh, when we talked about solitude several weeks ago. We talked about the importance. We said Jesus did this. Set aside specific times on a regular basis to be with God. And I think part of your, your time of solitude should include meditation. I think that's really significant, really important. Here's another real practical thing. I would say maybe select a passage or a portion of scripture and read and reread it, read and reread it, read and reread it. I'll just tell you, I love uh, Bible reading plans. I think Bible reading plans are awesome and they're helpful and I'm a big advocate for them. But can I just also tell you, and I think we know this, there could be a danger sometimes with reading Bible plans. And that's that sometimes we can approach it like a checklist and it becomes about getting through the plan rather than the word of God getting through to you. And so maybe it might be helpful for you. Like, what if you did something like this? What if you said, for an entire week, I'm gonna read one passage of scripture over and over and over again. So maybe you said, you know, I'm just gonna read Romans 8. Every day, I'm gonna read Romans 8, and I'm not gonna be a jet skier. I'm going to be a scuba diver. I am going to haga Romans 8. And what if you said that? I think that might be a really good step in that direction. Here's another really, really super practical thing I think might be helpful. Consider writing out scripture by hand. And I just tell you, I found this to be so helpful to me. And the reason is because I can write so, I, I can type and I can speak and think so much faster than I can write by hand. And so when I write out scripture by hand, it forces me to slow myself down and to think about every word and every letter that I'm writing. Here's something I recommend people do. This is a great thing. What if you read a couple of verses and then you stopped and you thought about it and then you tried to write it out in your own words. I think that's awesome because what are you doing? You're filtering the Bible through your brain and you're translating it into your own words. I'm just telling you, that will, that will highly increase your ability to haggah out the text. That's huge. How about this one? Practice scripture memory. Practice scripture. And I know there's some of you who are like, I'm terrible at memorizing stuff. And I tell people this all the time. You're really not. You're just really not. I remember I was talking to a young guy not too long ago, and he's like, I, I would love to memorize the Bible. I'm just so bad at it. And then we kept talking, and he went on to, we were talking about fantasy football, and he wanted to tell me every stat of every player in the league. It's like, you do not have a bad memory. We memorize what's important to us. So I think scripture memory is huge. When the Bible talks about meditating, a lot of times it refers to meditating day and night. It talks about laying in your bed and meditating on scripture. Now, how are you able to do that? You could open your Bible for sure, but another great way to do that is that you could memorize it, and then you could pull it up, whatever. I was talking to one of our life group leaders who's uh, studying the same, this same topic for his life group, and he was telling me that one of his commentaries he was, re- was reading said that meditating is like a cow chewing its cud. 
and I like that. And I thought to myself, you know what, the best way you can do that is to memorize scripture. Because if you memorize scripture and you're laying in bed at night and you, you wake up and you can't sleep, what can you do? Man, you can just burp up a verse. And you just chew on that bad boy till you fall asleep again. And I'm just saying, I think that's awesome. It's a great way to, to kind of focus. Jesus memorized scripture in just an unprecedented way. And when you read scripture, you see that's the case. Here's the next thing. Uh, oh, by the way, I just mentioned this. There's a, a Bible memory app that's super helpful and is free. And uh, I'm just telling you, it's awesome. It's called Bible Memory, the Bible Memory app, free on the app store, super helpful. Uh, next one is this. Learn to study the Bible for yourself. All right, I think especially if you're a person who's been a follower of Jesus for a little bit of time, man, I think you need to take some steps towards learning to study the Bible for yourself. I don't know why this is the case, but there is a perpetual human tendency for us to have someone else talk to God for us. I don't know why this is the case, but a lot of us are content. We just find ourselves content to let God's message come to us secondhand. And so sometimes we can be like, look, this is all great, Tony, but why don't you just haggah for me? And then you just tell me what it means. You know, why don't I just read some books of some people who have, have done this and I can just learn from my, I like to read Christian books. I like to listen to podcasts. I'm telling you, all those things are wonderful. Man, listen to me, there is no substitute. There is no substitute for you putting your roots into the living stream of God's word. And so at some point, you gotta learn to do that. You gotta learn to do that. That, by the way, is why we have resources like the equipping division. The equipping division is uh, these eight-week courses. They begin the second week of September, and they are designed to equip you to know and understand your Bible better. That's what they're kind of encouraging you to do. I just wanna tell you, one of the things I love about the equipping division, by the way, you know what the equipping division is? In a lot of ways, it's accountability. You know why people like to work out with other people? Because it makes them do the thing that they wanna do, but they know they're not gonna do unless there's someone that's holding their feet to the fire. The equipping division is accountability to you, and it will help you learn these. I guarantee you will not regret it if you jump in on something like this. You can register for the equipping division, by the way, on our website. It's a way, it's uh, eight weeks, two and a half hour sessions. I know that might sound like a big time commitment, but what if you said, you know what? What if I just took my Netflix time and I cut it in half? And I just said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna devote myself this fall to digging into God's word. It could be awesome. That'd be awesome. All right, let me just say this last thing. And that's this. This pattern will change you. It just will. And I know it will. The Bible promises it will. And not only that, there's a bunch of studies that show that the number one catalyst of spiritual growth in a Christian's life is regular time personally spent in the Bible. And I just, I just tell you, that's what we want for you. And I could tell you this much, this pattern right here, this pattern, I mean, all of them, but this one especially, man, this pattern changed me. It changed me. And I actually remember, I remember the day and the moment that it occurred to me, the power of meditation. I'll just tell you the story real quick. So I was, uh, some of you might know my story. When I was 17 years old, I gave my life to Jesus, became a Christian. And then when I was 18 years old, I went to Bible school. And so I went to a Bible school in downtown Chicago. And for four years, I, I was taught how to study the Bible. And I'll just admit to you, kind of to my own discredit, when I was in Bible school, I didn't delight in the Bible. I just really didn't. I, I loved Jesus. But in a lot of ways, I kind of viewed the Bible as a textbook. And so I learned how to study the Bible and I passed my classes and I learned how to do all that kind of thing. I learned the history of it. I learned where it came from. But it wasn't until after I graduated from Bible school 
And I remember I, I lived in Chicago for another year after I graduated. I, I got an apartment downtown and I had to find a job. And uh, the only job I could find was I was uh, selling designer men's clothing at this store in Chicago, which if you know me, by the way, is just like a total joke because this is like not my thing at all. But it was the only job I could find and it paid well. And so I was selling these designer men's clothes. As you can imagine, being in a big city, selling designer men's clothing, uh, the, the guys that I worked with were guys who were very far from God. And uh, many of them just lived lifestyles that were completely opposite of what God desired. And honestly, many of them were hostile towards the gospel. And so when they found out that I was a Christian and that I went to Bible school, I became the target of a lot of jokes. You can kind of imagine that. But anyway, as I worked there, me and these guys, we actually became really good friends. And I really developed a deep love for these guys. And I remember I was just like, man, I, just, I so want them. I so want them to know God. And so we talk about religion and most of the time it would, you know, it would go well and sometimes it wouldn't go well. But I just remember thinking, man, I, just, I wish that there was some way. I wish there was some way that these guys could be introduced to God. And so I remember I had this idea. I said, well, you know, there's one thing I know I can do. I can study the Bible. That's what I've been trained to do. And so I said, what if I had a Bible study? What if I just started a Bible study? And I knew that these guys, these guys would never step foot into a church. And so I said, uh, I'm not going to have it at a church. I'm going to have it at the bar next door. So there was this bar and grill right next to the, re- to the, to the store that we worked at. And so I told him, I said, we're going to have it there. So I went to every guy on the floor that I worked at, uh, the floor that I worked on at this men's clothing store. And I invited every single person. I said, listen, I'm going to be starting a Bible study. It's going to be next door. I just, wanna, I just want you to know you're invited. I'd love it if you came. I'll tell you, I was shocked. Many of these men who were hostile towards the gospel were so thankful that I invited them. And they said, man, thanks for thinking of me. And a couple of them were like, I don't really believe in the Bible at all. And I was like, that's okay. That's okay. You don't have to believe it. You could just come if you want to. You can come and observe. And I'll tell you, I had about a dozen guys who agreed to be part of this Bible study. And I remember after they agreed to do this, I was really excited. But then all of a sudden, I got hit with this wave of panic because I was like, oh, crap, I got to I gotta lead this thing, you know, and I got to study. And so I thought, well, are we going to study? And I thought, well, you know what we'll do is we'll study the book of John because the book of John is a great place to start if you're new to Christianity. By the way, let me just say, if you're investigating Christ, the book of John is a great place to start. And so I remember, I, I just, I so vividly remember this day. So I had a day off, uh, a day off of work. I didn't have kids. I wasn't married, so I had a lot of time. And I remember I went down to this library in downtown Chicago. I still remember the library. It was the Harold Washington Library. This library right here is a, is, a, is, is a tremendous landmark in my faith and in my life with Jesus. And I remember I went to this library. I went to the top floor, beautiful, beautiful library. And I remember I sat down and I opened up John chapter one and I got out some Bible resources that I had. And man, I'm telling you, for the next six hours... Like I said, I was single at the time. For the next six hours, I had God. And I'm telling you, I dug into every word. I looked at, I was picking every morsel off of the bone. There was times I was confused. There was times I was inspired. There was times I wanted to get out of my chair and run around the library and shout. There was times I was weeping. And I'm just telling you, I just, I got to dig in. And I remember when I left the library that day, I walked out in the streets of Chicago and I felt like a blind man who could see for the very first time. I remember my world looked different. 
I remember I felt like I had tasted honey for the first time. I felt like Moses walking off the mountain, like my face was radiating and glowing. And I remember I thought to myself, whatever that was, I want more of that. And it changed me. And I went on to see, we started that Bible study over the course of a year. The Gospel of John changed some of those guys. Two of them gave their life to Christ over the course of that year. And I'm just telling you, this can change you. And let me just tell you from the bottom of my heart, as your pastor and as your brother in Christ, I want nothing more for you than for you to love, love God's word. For you to taste and see how good it is and how it leads to life change and it points you to Jesus. I don't want God's word to be a bummer to you. I don't want it to be a burden to you. I don't want it to be a bore to you. I don't want it to be a chore. I want you to see how awesome it is. I want you to taste and see it. And I'm just telling you, we live in a world of distractions and there is an opportunity right here. There is an eternal stream that is flowing and you can plug in and be transformed. And so at the expense of sounding desperate, which I just will, and I'm pleading with you, Take some steps. I'm not saying you gotta study it for six hours a day. Take some steps to putting meditation in your life because I promise you, I promise you, it'll change you. It'll change you. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, I just wanna say thank you for your word. How kind, how kind you are that you didn't leave us in the dark on this earth to not know who you are and to not know how to know you but you have went to great lengths to preserve for us this incredible resource. And so, Father, I pray you'd give us a vision for what it would look like to be people who are like trees that are planted in streams of water. Father, I, we, we have a unique challenge ahead of us. We know we live in a society of incredible distraction. Father, we know that everything is competing and yelling for our attention. And quite honestly, most of the things that distract us the most are the things of the most worthless so, Father, would you help us? Would you give us grace? Would you give us a vision? Or would you help us to, to see the value and power that's found in being people who are planted deeply into your word? So, God, I pray that as a result of this talk, that we wouldn't just be mere hearers of the word, but help us to be doers of the word. I pray that it would bear fruit in our lives, and we ask this in Christ's name.